this in a while or if you're just unfamiliar uh, with the text, just go to the back of your Bibles, find the book of Revelation, and just go back one book. The next to last book, um, look carefully or you'll skip right over it. It's a very short book. It's going to be about a page or two there um, in your copies of God's Word. Before I read God's holy and inerrant word from Jude, verse 5 through 10, let's go and ask that his blessing might be added to our time together. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, your word is a light. Your gospel is the light that shines into darkness. And though the darkness rails and wars against it, Father, it will not overcome it. For your light must come and vanquish every corner of darkness and the minds and hearts of your people. So this morning, Father, it is our prayer that it would do exactly that thing. It would, it would convict where it needs to convict. And it would, it would encourage and give hope where it is needed. And it's for the sake of Jesus, whose word this is, we pray. Amen. So hear now the word of God. Jude, verse 5 through 10. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change and under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams to foul the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but instead said, The Lord rebuked you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Thus ends the reading of God's word, and he add his blessing to it. If you go to my dad's house in Raymond, Mississippi, go to the back bedroom, there's an old chest of drawers. It used to belong to my grandfather. And that very bottom right drawer, you will see the thing packed with old VHS copies of pretty much any Disney movie that there has ever been. I grew up very much a Disney child. Pinocchio, Cinderella, Snow White, Fox and the Hound, you name it, I've seen it probably at least 20 times. These are stories that I grew up with, stories that I loved. Um, I enjoyed them. As they, they, all, they all seem to have good, good, good morals to the story, and things like that. Uh, they were sweet. They were kind of compassionate and things like that. Very childlike. Something made for children. But then, just a couple of years ago, I found a copy of Grimm's Fairy Tales the stories that those movies are based upon. And let me tell you, there is a big, 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 big difference between the movies and the actual source material. The source material is very often brutal, borderline psychotic. It's like a it's it's like a it's like a bad dream in some cases. I 
I can't even really get into it because of how, how graphic some of the stories are. I just, suffice it to say, the, in the story of Cinderella and the actual ending, it doesn't end very well for the stepsisters. They end in a very brutal way. It's horrifying. I was going through and I was reading that story of Cinderella, and I'm like, these poor kids. <laughs> Why would you write a book like this and market it to children? Well, as it turns out, they had a really good reason for doing that. And the reason that, the reason that some of these stories are so bleak and dark and even brutal is because they're trying to teach children a very important truth. That there is a real thing that is called evil and that it has real and dire consequences. That evil, when committed, is, it causes you to come under judgment. Even if you don't believe in God, even like in society and with the government and rules, there's punishment for it. And so what you do, the actions that you make, the decisions that you make, those have real and dire consequences. In our text today, Jude is doing the same thing, but instead of using fairy tales to highlight the real consequences and nature of sin, he is going to use history, the stories of God's work throughout the Old Testament, to highlight that same thing the brothers Grimm try to highlight through their fairy tales, that there is a real thing as evil, that there is a real thing as false teaching, and so are the consequences. They are real, and to beware of them. And so this morning, I want us to look at this text in two different parts. First, I want us to look at the judgment of the false teachers, for them leading the sheep of Christ astray, and then secondly, the nature of the false teaching. So the judgment of the false teachers and the nature of the false teaching. Let's begin by looking at their judgment. As I've said, they do this by following a tried and true Old Testament prophetic way of doing this. By bringing to the minds of God's people his past acts of judgment. And here in this judgment, we begin, the first one we begin with in verse 5 is the judgment not of a foreign people, but the judgment of God's own people in the Exodus. And so, you know the story. They are in Egypt. They are in the house of slavery. It is a hard and brutal slavery. But God hears their cries. He is merciful to them because of his steadfast covenant love. And he comes to them through his instrument, Moses, and he frees them. He judges the Egyptians. He even judges the Egyptian gods through the Ten Commandments. He brings, their, he brings his people to the Red Sea, which is their salvation. But it is the judgment of Egypt as the waves crash over the armies of Pharaoh and leave them in a waste. But then what happens almost immediately after that? They begin to complain. They begin to doubt. They come to Mount Sinai, and Moses is hardly on the mountain in five minutes. And what do they do? They break the very first commandment. They make a golden calf, and Aaron has the gall to say, Israel, this is Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. But Judah here is specifically speaking about not Sinai, but what happened at Canaan. So you know the story. God, in a tremendous act of grace, actually brings his people off of Sinai. They should have perished there, but he didn't. He brought them off of Sinai. He brings them around to the Jordan River. 
And the Israelites send out 12 spies to spy out the land and to see what's going on. Well, when the spies return, two of them, Joshua and Caleb, bring a good report. They say, guys, you won't believe how gracious God has been to us. This isn't some barren wasteland. This isn't some wilderness. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a place where we can lay down roots forever and ever and ever. Praise be to God, for he has been gracious to us once again. But the other ten, they say, did you not see the same thing that we saw? I mean, forget the land. Yeah, the land's great, but did you see the people inhabiting the land? Did you see how big they were? Did you see how many there were? Do we have no chance against the Canaanites? And then they begin to accuse God of injustice. They say, well, I guess God just wanted to bring us out of Egypt because he would rather the Canaanites kill us than the Egyptians. One is no better than the other. We're going to die either way. So who is? why is God doing this? And Jude tells us what the sin that they are ultimately guilty of committing, and that is unbelief. And all unbelief, not believing the word of God, has underneath it always and always and always is a belief that God is not good. This is what disobedience looks like. When you receive a command, we just went through the Ten Commandments. When you receive one of those commands and you say, yeah, it says you're not commit adultery, but I'm not very happy in my marriage, and so I'm going to go off and gallivant and things like that. What you're saying is, you're not only are you harming your husband or your wife, you're also saying to God, God, you gave me a command that is not good, and therefore you are not good. That is blasphemy. God's commands are good. If they are not good, you are saying that he is not good. That is what unbelief looks like. Not just not, not, just not believing that God doesn't exist, but believing that he exists and is not good. That is also unbelief that brings a person under the righteous condemnation of God. Then in verse 6, you have another example, the fall of the angels. And here, notice the irony here. The angels are in the high place of authority. Uh, they are they are working in creation, but they have authority over it. And but it wasn't enough. They are guilty of what I love R.C. Sproul's language. That any sin is tantamount to cosmic treason. It is us going to the throne of God and pulling them off that throne and saying, "I am better at this than you are. Get lost." The angels had done the same thing. They did not know their place. They sought the authority, not of angels, but they sought the authority of God. And the angels are far greater than humanity. And God struck them down, put them, takes them from a seat of authority and puts them into chains at the mere sound of his voice. If he does that with angels, what is the condemnation like for us humans, for us image bearers of God? And then you have the third example, Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. The fire that destroys Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible becomes a type of, it's a prototype of sorts. It's a way that the rest of the Bible kind of looks at, um, and when, it, when it's looking for like an illustration of and to describe what the judgment of God is going to look like. It is the fire of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is a type of the what Jude says is the eternal fire of God that is unquenching. It's what it looks like. But here's the thing. 
Sodom and Gomorrah were judged for a particular sin, that of sexual, sexual immorality and the pursuing of unnatural desires. The picture of fire, however, becomes more generally applied to the rest of Scripture to describe the judgment of not just sexually, sexual immorality, but all manner of sin. God punishes without any difference all ungodliness, for all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. I'll give you a great example of this. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Paul here speaks of the same sins that Sodom and Gomorrah are guilty of. Sexual immorality, unnatural desires, homosexuality. He says in Romans 1, he says, he says that, that God gave them over to the base minds. They exchanged natural relationships with unnatural relationships. Women with women and men to men. He goes on about this for three verses. And I think he's doing this on purpose. He is moving them from, I guess what you consider a an uncommon sin, but then he lumps in with it all manner of common sins. Let me read for the beginning in verse 28, what he adds on top of the unnatural desires of man. In verse chapter 1, verse 28, he says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You see what he just did? He moved from something that seems like it's on the fringes of humanity, on the fringes of society, and then he lumps in all these things that we probably did as we were walking into the door. Malice, disobedience to parents, disobedience to authority, gossip, slander. And he lumps them all into that and say all of that is under the wrath of God and is deserving of the eternal fire. I, I, I heard a story once of a, of a Baptist pastor who did the same thing, this idea of, of moving from the uncommon into the common. Uh, he was asked to preach a uh, revival at this small Baptist church. And he comes in and he begins his sermon with a diatribe against homosexuality and transgenderism and all this kind of weirdness that we have going on uh, in society right now. And he goes on and on and on, and the church is, is, is yes this, amen that, over and over and over again. And then he just stopped. He got quiet. He looked at the congregation, and he said, I am getting way too many amens for this to do you any good. So let's talk about pornography. Nothing. Not a peep. What he did, and it's just it's absolute genius is what he did. What he did was he used the people's own voice to condemn themselves. You think you're better because you don't do that? You have way more in common with the those on the outskirts of society. Those who are or I guess we could say like like wicked in peculiar ways, then you have in common with God. 
You have nothing in common with him. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And Judas doing the same thing. Remember in verse 4, it uses the term sensuality. And the Greek, this is very much a general term that stands in for a whole host of sins. Carnality, filthy language, gluttony, excess, unbridled lust. The false teachers were leading the people into all manner of bodily and mental and spiritual sins. And make no mistake about it, all who practice such things are under the judgment of God. None shall escape it. All of these things are what are being practiced and taught by the false teachers. Look with me here in verse 8. Jude goes back through the lists of sins again. He says of the false teachers that they defiled the flesh. That is Sodom. They reject authority. That's the angels. And they blaspheme God. That is the Israelites there uh, at the Jordan River. Now in verse 9, rather than giving an example, he gives a contrast. The archangel Michael, who though he is the chief of the angels, that's what the word arch means, though he is the chief of the angels, he did not make a presumptuous, blasphemous judgment, but even he himself submitted to God and said, may the Lord rebuke you. Uh, let me very briefly, because this is one of those things that you're always tempted to kind of like just kind of skip over, but if I, if I did, we'd have, I'd have a lot of people asking questions about this. You might read that story and you're like, you know, Pastor Robinson, I'm, you know, I've done the whole Bible reading plan, Bible in the year. I've gone through it a couple of times and I don't know what Jude is talking about there. What, what do you mean Michael contending with the devil about the body of Moses? Well, the reason you, didn't, you can't find it in your Bible is because it isn't there. Uh, that is from a mostly lost text, but most likely comes from a book that is called The Testimony of testimony of Moses, where the story is reported. Now, when we see that, some of us can kind of, you know, have a little bit of a conniption when it comes to this. We'll say, why is Jude quoting from a non-biblical source? Or does this mean that we need to add the testament of Moses to our Bibles? Because since Jude is quoting it, that must mean that it is true. And if it's true, it must need to be in the Bible. A couple of very brief remarks about this. First, just because something is true does not mean that it has to be in the Bible. I hope that from the pulpit I say lots of true things. Don't be adding them to your Bibles. Don't be writing down my transcripts and sticking them up there behind Revelation. The Word of God is true, but not all things that are true are the Word of God. Also, too, this is not a unique case in the Bible. The Bible is full of quotations of extra-biblical uh, sources. Um, a few Old Testament examples. Uh, the book of, J uh, of Jasher is quoted both in Joshua 10 and 2 Samuel 1. The book of Shemaiah is quoted quite a, quite a bit in the book of Chronicles. And even in the New Testament, Paul quotes two Greek pagans, Epimenides and Aratus. And so, to kind of sum up this point, Jude is quoting from non-biblical sources, and that neither means that it is untrue or that the Testament of Moses was mistakenly left out of the Bible. So, just calm down. It's really not that big of a deal. It can be true and not be in the Bible. So Jude here is using the story of Michael contending with the devil for the body of Moses to contrast the humility of Michael with the arrogance of the false teachers. Look at what he says in verse 9. 
He says, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but instead said, the Lord rebuke you. So even though Archangel Michael will not make a presumption, but will instead call upon the name of the Lord. But what did the false teachers do? They make all kinds of presumptions. They do the opposite. They contend with the devil by giving in and doing what the devil pleases. They contend instead with the devil, they contend with God. They say in their hearts that his commands are not good, his doctrines are not true. I'm going to come up with it all on my own. And they are under the same judgment of the fallen angels. And I know the topic of judgment and hell is difficult for many of us to talk about. It's difficult for me personally to talk about. I'm a product of a very, a very tolerant society, a very tolerant culture. And, uh, and while I appreciate a certain amount of tolerance on a societal level, I do not need a, for instance, I don't need a sinless neighbor to be able to love him and to be able to serve him. But then again, I am not holy. I am not God. God is most certainly patient when it comes to sin, but he will not pass it over. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 9. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Wrath, judgment, and hell make us uncomfortable, but they are good. The fear of them is one of God's instruments that he uses to guide and to sanctify the Christian in his Christian living. But they are also the exercising of his good and sovereign will. And I think there are some instances in our lives where when we see great examples of evil, that I think we can all agree that we are very glad that there is a hell. That we are very glad that no sin will go unpunished. That the wrath of God will be poured out. Just this past week was a good example of that. The shooting at Covenant Presbyterian School. A woman comes in, shoots three adult staff members, and then three small children. I, I, I made the mistake of looking at the pictures of those three children and in each one of them, I saw I saw my Mac, I saw my Marlo. You know what I said? I'm glad. I'm glad that God is just. I am glad that He has wrath. I am glad that there is a hell, because something like that shouldn't just end with someone being shot by a window. It need, it needs something more. Their evil is real, and so are the consequences. But Think for a second. If hell is hot for the woman who shot those children, how much hotter is it for the false teachers who would lead the little sheep of God astray? But you see, that woman went in there and she took their lives. But she did not touch their soul. You know who comes and touches the soul? False teachers. False teachers don't care about hurting your body. In fact, many of them want you to have pleasure in the body. But they want your soul. They hate you. They want to see you perish. This is, this is the thinking and the philosophy of Satan. 
guns can touch your body, but they will never touch your soul. It is false teaching that will do this. This is one thing we're doing in the new members class. Today we looked at church polity, church government, and sometimes church government can can seem kind of boring, but one of the reasons that we have church government is is the examination of the ones who would stand in these pulpits. The testing of them. Not that it's the examination of what they know, but the examinations of their lives. Why? Because I may never bring a gun in here, but the things that I say, if they are contrary to the word of God, they will do far more damage and far more destruction than anybody with an AK-47 ever, ever, ever could. That is why we have polity. That is why we answer to the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, who lays his life down for the sheep. And it's one thing to have a wolf in the congregation. It is another thing to have him in the pulpit. But my hope and prayer is that we will fear false teaching, unbelief, and sensuality every bit as much as we we, we fear the gun. Because it is far, far more dangerous. Let's move on now to the nature of these false teachers, the nature of their teaching. First in verse 8, Jude says, that these false teachers are relying on dreams. Um, I come from, uh, not recently, back in the day, uh, a tradition that loves dreams, visions, prophecy. And I could go on endlessly uh, about this and the dangers of it, but to keep it, to keep it brief, there is, I think, a temptation in all of us to believe that the Word of God is not sufficient for everything that is required of required of your doing, required of your mind. This often comes into the light in our prayer lives. We might ask for a sign or a vision, and I get it. That would make things a lot easier. God would just come and just say, hey, do this. Hey, don't do that. But that's not how he operates. That's not how he, how, how he works. He has revealed himself once and for all in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who has revealed to us in Scripture alone. I can't remember who said it, but it bears repeating. If you want to hear God speak, open your Bibles and read it out loud. That is where he speaks. It may not be easy. It may take hard work, but that it is sufficient. And you do not require anything else. You require the word of God. But I don't want to spend much time speaking about that. I want to spend more time looking at what Jude says in verse 10. He says of the false teachers that they are like unreasoning animals understanding instinctively we all have instincts animal instincts and certain ones are good we have a survival instinct women have maternal instincts fathers have paternal instincts some of these are very good but what makes us uniquely human what separates us from the animal kingdom is that we restrain our instincts not just because following our instincts might get us into trouble, but because we understand that our instincts are often contrary to what is good. I used to speak to young men that I used to teach a lot about what our culture thinks of manhood, manliness. A word to kind of sum that up is, I think, the word conquest, particularly sexual conquest. Um, Young people even have a word for it today, body count. 
it's they measure their manhood and they measure their manliness by counting how many people they've shared their bed with, who they've slept with. This is many people's own life philosophy, their philosophy of life and how they live, philosophy of life and how they live is based on pure animalistic instinct, the urge to mate. We have the instinct to mate, but that is a poor philosophy to live by, and it is inhuman. You know who else has that same philosophy? Stray dogs. Stray dogs have that philosophy. You are far more important than a stray dog. You are a human. You are made in the likeness of God. You do not live your life based upon instinct. You live your life based upon the revealed truth of God. To be a Christian is to submit to the will, to the to the will and to the reign of Christ, rather than the reign of our own animal instincts. This means that day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, we must make our minds captive to the Word of God and exercise restraint. Now, almost everyone alive does this, not just the Christian. Even the most hedonistic person that you can think of has to restrain, restrain themselves in some ways. And usually, it's society that does this. Society's laws. Well, if you do this, bad things will happen to you. If you do this, like, I know you want money, and there's money in that cash register, but if you take that, you will go to prison. That restrains. That restrains everybody. It restrains me. It restrains you. But a Christian is different. A Christian is not simply restrained by the threat of force. A Christian is also restrained by the grace of God. We're restrained by grace. And what does it look like to be restrained by grace? Look with me again in verse 5. Here Jude says that the Israelites who had come out of the Exodus were destroyed by Christ. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, that's like thousands of years before Christ. How is Christ there destroying them? Well, this is very common New Testament language of Jesus the pre-incarnate, eternal Son of God. John chapter 1, He was in the beginning with God. Colossians 1, By Him all things were created. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. But verse 5 also says that in addition to Christ being the one who judged Israel, He was also the Savior of Israel. He wasn't just judge. He was also Savior. So which is it? judge or is he savior the world only knows him as a judge and a destroyer in revelation they will cry out for the mountains to crush them but the christian has seen more than just this he has seen the judge come off of his judgment seat and take his place on the gallows of justice he has seen the lion of judah become the lamb of god and sometimes we are hit by how inconceivable this grace is. Just this past week, I was hit by a just an, an, an all of the grace of God in the personal work of Jesus Christ. I was there. I was there the moment Mary Alice McDaniel took her last breath. I'm there with the family, and there's just a peculiarness when a Christian dies. When a Christian dies. We mourn our loss. We do not mourn the loss of the person. They have simply gone home. There is such a hope and there is such a grace. Yes, there is grief there. 
just as Jesus weeps at the death of Lazarus. But there is no despair. We do not despair. The Christian's tears are always contained. The sweet dew of hope. And what's so overwhelming about this fact is that it should not be that way. There should not be any hope in death. That should be the end of the thing, but it isn't. Hope shouldn't mingle with death, but it does. Death should be final, but it isn't. The judge shouldn't become the accused, but our Lord Jesus Christ has become that very thing. The Lion of Judah is the Lamb of God. Our King is our servant, and our God became our death. Anytime you approach the mercy seat, anytime the gospel is read or proclaimed into your ears, there should be a part of you that, that, that we're talking about restraint, has to restrain yourself to keep from falling down on your face in the middle of the church service and thanking God for the abundance of his grace and the personal work of Jesus Christ. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve hope. You deserve pain. You deserve misery. The misery of your sin, the misery of death. But that's not what a funeral service is. We're, we're going to have at 2 o'clock the visitation for Mary Alice McDaniel. And then we're then at 4 o'clock, we're going to have a, we're going to have a funeral. But I, I don't even like the word funeral. At 4 o'clock, you're invited to come back to the house of God to give worship and praise to his name for the grace that he has given to us. Why should you come here? Why should you come? Yes, to, to be to be with the family and to encourage them and to minister to them, but to praise and to worship the living God who sent his son to become your sin so that in him you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. It is a worship service that you are called to. So when we sin, the devil might want us to think that when God gives us a command that we're just rebelling against tyranny. That's not what we're rebelling against. We're rebelling against unspeakable, unfathomable grace. Even when Christ's commands don't align with, our, with, our, with what our instincts tell us, we nonetheless must trust him because the grace that he has shown us by becoming our Savior he gave his own life for me, and yet when I sin, I essentially say, I don't trust you. I don't think you have my good in mind. I don't believe that you want me to be happy. I think you want to hurt me. So I'm instead going to follow my own heart, my own instincts, and I'm going to become like an animal rather than one in the image of God purchased by the life of God. Well, how can I know? If God gives me something that seems contrary to my nature, how can I know? How can I trust that what he gives me is in my best interest, and he has my good and my salvation at heart. No one has said it better than the Apostle Paul. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He died for you. If I take a bullet for you, you better believe I had your good in mind. It certainly wasn't my own. How much more so when the Son of God does it? When we sin, when we disbelieve, when we follow our instincts, when we follow the body, when we follow the pleasure, when we follow Satan, the prince of the power of the air, we turn our nose up to the offer of grace. We turn our back on our Savior. We become like the disciples who, as Christ was dying and bleeding on the cross, 
because they turned away from him and ran. Don't run. We believe false teachers and abide by our animal instincts. We don't just rebel against the reign of Christ, but we also distrust the goodness of love and the grace of Christ. Satan would have us believe that we serve a tyrant, but in fact, we serve a lamb. Our Heavenly Father, um, here in just a few moments, we're going to sing a song, and then we're going to come to the table. Table of the Lamb. We're going to have the body of the Lamb, and we're going to have the blood of the Lamb poured out for the forgiveness of sins. A reminder, a testimony, a sign, a sure sign and seal that the work of Christ is as real in the heavenly places as those elements are real in our hands and in our mouths. Father, I'd ask that your blessing would be upon it, that we would quiet our hearts, that we would reflect on our sins, but that that reflection would cause us to rise up in praise of the Son of God, whose body was broken and whose blood was spilled, that we might become children of the living God. It is in Jesus' name that I ask these things. Amen.